0: All right, everyone. It's so good to see you. We are here for podcast number two. Um, if you're watching us, obviously you see I have a very special guest with us today. If you're listening, you'll meet her in just a moment. Um, so we're going to continue on today. And you know, ever since I came out with the first podcast, I've been uh, my inbox has been flooded with people asking me, and you know, really, truly sharing some of their stories. I've had a lot of parents uh, reaching out to me over the past 24 hours since we posted the podcast and. Um, a lot of the parents, the questions I get is this. Uh, many of them have teenage sons or daughters around 17, 18 years old. Some of them are already hooked on heroin. Uh, many of them are out there doing ecstasy. And I think the, the struggle that I have found through my experience in addiction, which I'm excited to have this guest with me today to, to really talk from a you know, professional standpoint is, the bond between a parent and a child is so different between the bond between a brother and a sister or you and a friend. And so when we have somebody in our life who's suffering from addiction or alcoholism, and it's a lot easier for us to cut somebody off and push them away than it is for a parent to cut off their own child. And so um, that's one of the things we're going to discuss today. So as I introduce this, this guest of mine today, her name is Hannah Brett. Um, I met Hannah. She's my soul sister. Um, And when I, I met Hannah, when I first moved to Atlanta, I had 60 days sober. I started getting sober in Los Angeles. I got a job at CBS Atlanta and flew to Atlanta not knowing a single person. And again, I only had 60 days. I didn't have a sponsor in AA. I didn't have anything. But there was this guy I used to party with down in Florida, and I always knew that he was going to Atlanta. And I said, listen, I'm I'm no longer partying. I'm getting sober. I'm moving to Atlanta, but I don't know anybody. And so I always see that you're in Atlanta visiting a girlfriend of yours. It would be really cool if you could just introduce me to some people that you know. Uh, this uh, former friend of mine's response was, boy, do I have the perfect gift for you. Um, he goes, my best friend up in Atlanta – is also sober. I think she had maybe like five or seven years at the time.
1: Seven? Uh, In 2010? No. 2010,
0: yeah, it's seven years. Seven years. Um, so when I flew to Atlanta, um, Hannah met me the very next day at an AA meeting. One of the first things she said was, hey, let's go hit a noon meeting. And we did. We went to lunch. And then the next i did yeah okay my bad okay yeah Yeah. so apparently i went to her house first but then we went to a meeting within the first like day or two that i was there and um then the next day hannah on her lunch break was like hey what are you doing today like let's go hit another noon meeting and i was so new to the program that i really didn't know what was happening but now when i look back i know exactly what was happening is hannah was simply showing me without preaching to me how the program works and how we reach out to others and we helped them. And Hannah knew that I was in a really critical time of my recovery. That first 90 days is crucial. Um, I didn't have a sponsor. And uh, and she knew that. She didn't really uh, preach it to me so much then. But she knew. Uh, she, she eventually got me my sponsor because she knew it was important. But she was showing me how the program works. And it was so cool that she was taking time out of her day every noon uh, for like two or three weeks. She would meet me at a meeting. So. And, been me and I've been stuck with her ever since. Okay. So um this. This is Hannah's first ever podcast. This is my first podcast. <laughs> She's incredible. So how many years do you have sober now?
1: Uh, we're coming up on year 16 in October. October
0: 16 7. years. Ooh, now, hey, so I always, it's always easy to know how long I've known Hannah. I've been sober for nine years and that's how, that's how I always know how long my friendship with Hannah has been. So yeah. we've been friends for nine years strong. Um, tell me a little bit um, what, just so we know, what was like the drugs of your choice before you decided to get sober?
1: I was a late bloomer. Um, I was, surprisingly, I was like this, perf- well, like a lot of addicts. Uh, I struggled with perfectionism, you know, as a kid. I had to be totally. perfect. And so with that, you know, in high school, I wasn't a party girl. I even, I never drank. Like, I even uh, started an organization at my high school called Safe Rides or worked with this organization where we'd pick drunk kids up from parties every weekend. So I never, you know, I never drank. And then when I t- went to college, uh, the drinking took off you know, and after then, college. So mostly it was alcohol, but then I think what really sped up my disease, as we call it, um, was uh, just a mixed bag of cocaine, um, pretty much at the end, I, I say that I was like a garbage pail kid. Like anything I could get my hands on, that would get me out of myself. And so that's what I did. But pretty much my drug of choice is I was old school alcoholic.
0: What, what got you into recovery? Like what got – not like you personally but as a profession because at some point in your recovery oh, like you – the yeah day. then all, you know at some point in your recovery right. you eventually got into the profession of helping other people I was
1: going to say what got me into treatment was my mom yeah. no. <laughs> my
0: who mom. is going to be watching by the way so hi mom
1: hi mom um so what got me into the profession um so i had a theater background and so when i got sober a lot of us we had to start over and um i knew i was really good at you know kind of selling myself and selling you know Being a chameleon, also as an addict, you have to do that and know your audience and all that. So I thought, (laughs) why not get into marketing? So I started with medical sales, did that for three years. And then I said, I need to find a product that I really believe in. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was treatment just because I saw how it helped myself and so many others. But the audience I really wanted to work with and the kids I really, uh, the people I really wanted to work with were young adults and adolescents. So that was what really uh, got me in. And I started my career about 12 years ago. Uh, with Talbot Recovery in Atlanta, um, and then I did that for six years, doing Marketing in the Southeast, and Turnbridge and... Bunch of other
0: places. Okay, so um, you're my friend, but I'm using you for your expertise, right. because um, I, I the experience that I have is just my experience getting sober. Hannah works in the profession, and there were so many questions that I've gotten over the past 24 hours, and a lot of them, Hannah, have to do with young kids, and I know that your expertise is getting young people into recovery.
1: And I will say this to yep. start, like I say to every parent, mm. I do not have a clinical background. Right. What I do have is my story and my wisdom over the past 12 years, and of watching this Process day in and day out of getting somebody into treatment. Right. So, 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 some the-
0: so, some of the the a lot of the comments that I've gotten from a lot of the parents at home are, they don't know where their son or daughter is. They're seventeen, eighteen right. years old. They know that their son or daughter is addicted to either ecstasy or heroin, and they feel helpless. Um, what do you say to a parent who knows that their child is using, right. and that child is still living in their house? Right. What do you say to that parent?
1: So, you know, Stacy and, and other, my wife and others laugh at me when I say this, but it's so true. Parent, What I always say to parents is you don't realize the power you have. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever has the pesos has the say And what I mean by that, as corny as that sounds, is, you know, at first thing when I start talking to the parents, I was like, um, I say, is your child living at the, at the house? And they say yes. And I'm like, how is the cell phone being paid for? What about their car? Um you know, food, all of that. So what I mean by that is they have more power and control than they think they do. Um, so if you're suspecting your kid is using, um, you know, I'm very big in an open line of communication. Typically, uh, if you are dealing with, whether it's a young adult or an adult, an addict, um, we will do anything in our power to protect our drug of choice, right? This is – for our brain this is how we cope this is how we function this is our favorite relationship this is our first love and so we will go and tell you what you want to hear we will you know manipulate whatever so I always say to parents the easiest way to get your answers is go get a drug test and you can go buy that anywhere I think you can get it at a cvs or anything at this point but i'm not sure about that but i always recommend like having an open line of communication and if they're still bucking it and won't talk to you because sometimes with kids like i had one last week where he was so happy not happy but he said he was relieved that someone just came to him because he was crying for help he was dying you know but then there are others that will freak out and you know run away from home or uh you know threaten their parents if you don't you know do this I'm gonna do that and the only thing I say to parents is be a parent you know I think the problem with this new generation is and I say to parents every day is you guys are so wrapped up in not offending your kid upsetting your kid you want to be their best friend you don't want to get them mad but here's the deal and it's it's this simple This is a disease. So if your kid had cancer, God forbid, you would go to the best oncologist, and the oncologist would say jump, and you would say how high, and you would follow their lead. And you have to look at addiction the same way. So if you're not strong enough as a parent and you need more guidance, what I also recommend is uh, looking in your area for parent support groups. Um, I know some facilities do that. There's Al-Anon, but then also – You know see if you can find some resources I I, like someone like me a lot of parents call me and say what do I do next and I might set them up with an interventionist who will then work with the family um, and do case management but just guide them through this and interventions don't always have to be like surprise Um, we can invite the individual in but as a family everybody's lined up and kind of on the same page
0: because I think that that's what too scares a lot of parents is that they feel like when they have to draw that line in the sand with their own child, right. they, I think the parents fear that if they do that, they're sending their kids to their grave. I think that a lot of parents have that fear, like, wait a second, if I just cut off my child, that means I'm giving up on my child. And I think it's that it's not,
1: it's not cutting your child off. It's loving your child differently.
0: It's get, I, And we like to say it's getting them to see their rock bottom a lot quicker yeah. so that they don't die, yeah. you know, and
1: And a big obstacle I know with talking to parents a lot is, you know, a lot of them say, and with adults, any families that I work with and I try to place, if not with the facility I'm working with at the time, somewhere else, the the next thing everyone says, but they don't want to go. And I always laugh because I'm like, do you want to go? Who wants to go to rehab? And the facts are this. I I would say, I mean – Over my years of working, maybe 1%, maybe 2% of people actually are willing to go. They're asking for help. They're wanting to go. Other than that, there is an intervention of some sort, whether it's physical, whether it's financial, whether it's the law, whether it's hiring someone to intervene. You have to – the hope is we have to get this individual into treatment and sober long enough that they realize, wait. I want to, I want to, like build a life worth protecting, mm-hmm. you know. And unfortunately, no one's, you know, you don't want to give up your whoopee and your 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 binky, you know. It's it's all you know. And you know, for me, I, I say to moms all the time. I, you know, I, I say on the phone. I said, "There's no way you love your kid more than my mom loved me," you know. Uh, my mother and I, to a lot of people, can it look, you know, she's a good Jewish mother. Can be codependent. We talk a million times a day. But I was dying, and she got out of the way immediately. I mean, if every parent could do what my mother did, there would be a lot more, I think, success in treatment and more kids in treatment just because she made that hard decision to be like, I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm going to listen to this person at the treatment center. I'm going to follow their lead, their direction, and I'm not listening to you. So it's fighting your whole parental instincts. That's what I mean. But – It's a life or death situation because the facts, the facts are that, and I say it so strongly because it's the truth, that this is an epidemic, but that the disease only gets worse. It's not about the substance they're consuming. It's about the disease in their brain. And like any other disease, if not treated, it just gets worse. And it's jails, institutions, or death people don't get sober. So I've seen it for years, you know. So many kids have died. But I say this, a lot of young adults I've worked with who have passed away, a lot of times it's in their house. It's in their bedroom, you know. Um, Some study a long time ago said something along the lines that, you know, um, and I could be wrong about this, so I shouldn't quote it, but I read somewhere along the lines where they said that more young adults – pass away or overdose in their home than they do on the street it's because you know we're giving we're like why we're giving them everything they need in their little bubble and so they're using at home we're on not saying we need to kick our kids to the street but
0: yeah so you know on the lines on the line along the lines of that you know talking about a lot of parents feel so much guilt. Yeah. A lot of parents feel so much guilt that they did something wrong and that guilt fuels them to help their kids even longer. Right. Because I think a lot of parents like sit there and go, bad parenting. Yeah, like I'm, I'm the parent. I must have messed up somewhere right. along the lines. And now because I feel like I messed up, there is no way in hell I can ever give up on my child right. or cut them off. What do you, how do, I, how do you even handle parents who deal with that shame and that guilt that their son or their daughter may have gotten? You know, m-
1: well, yeah. messed
0: up with the drug scene, and they they just kind of wonder like, how the heck did something like this even happen?
1: So, addiction's a funny thing. It, it 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 is it's a genetic thing, right? So it can come from like, you know, for me, I had a bit of, I had quite a bit of addiction in my family background, and uh, so I kind of knew the gene was out there, you know, and I could get that. Um, But it it has nothing to do with parenting. I mean, I went to the best schools. I I had the most (laughs) amazing mom. Isn't that crazy? You know, it's funny, too. Like, people still think addiction is drinking out of a brown paper bag. (laughs) It's that stereotype
0: of only homeless people are out there using heroin, you know? And
1: I work with some of the, you know, I work with very wealthy families, Mm -hmm. and then I also work with middle-class families, but it has, there's no discrimination with addiction, Mm -hmm. you know? It could be, you know, anyone from the president to your neighbor. Um, There was a campaign recently where if you were affected by addiction, they wanted you to put a black balloon outside your house. Mm -hmm. And the point was for people to see they weren't alone that this it's not a dirty secret no it's not because you were a bad parent or your kids are hanging out with the wrong kids it's it's they're self-medicating for something else right there's something in your brain saying use whether it's anxiety yourself you're treating for depression or a secondary diagnosis of any sort or you know um for some people it's they've had a traumatic situation happen you know and they don't want to think about it or feel it you know but um i forgot what your question was <laughs> no <laughs> no i just went off but um the guilt and shame so here's That's the exactly other here's about. the here's the fun piece i i always tell parents you know i just talked to a dad the other day where he, you could just hear it in his voice he was broken and he was you know i i, I, I did i mess up did i mess up yeah. and i said you didn't mess up But don't mess up going forward. Meaning, you know, his son currently is in treatment, and Mm -hmm. I'll say to him, don't maybe out of the five phone calls, pick up the one, you know, out of the five. Or um, I also say to work with that guilt and shame. You know, this this concept that you're dropping that individual off to treatment to fix them or to get them the help is great, but it's it's a family disease. So as much work as your son or daughter is doing, we're going to ask the same of you. So always pick a program where there's a very strong family program. A lot of people resist that because they may have their own issues with addiction and they don't want to deal with it. But for a family to successfully do this, you you have to do it as a unit. You all have to change. Um, I haven't seen the movie Beautiful Boy, but a lot of people say for parents out there, and I don't mean to plug the movie, but my mother read the book and it, it's Pretty brilliant. If you need help kind of navigating or watching how this all happens, Mm -hmm. go see the movie. You know, how this really can affect the whole family unit. Because the good news is that kid of yours, if they get sober and stay sober, they're going to change who they are. Mm -hmm. So you need to, in a good way, but then you need to be able to also grow as a family. You know what I mean? If you're not doing any work on yourself as a mom and a dad, uh, a wife, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. It it just it it doesn't work, right? You know, it. We want the individual to come home to a different household as well.
0: Okay, uh, because I have you here. Well, first, let's uh, quickly talk about. I think a, a third a third question that I get is, uh, what do we do if we maybe can't afford treatment? Like right. treatment can be super expensive. All right, there's like you know the right. different classes of treatment, and there's right. different prices of it. Um, quickly, uh, what would you say to somebody who their initial reaction is to me when I respond to them? Are, are you willing or to get your son or daughter into treatment? You know, sometimes their concern is, is God, how much is that going to cost?
1: Right. So, um, another conversation I have every day is the biggest misconception, um, with treatment and insurance is, oh, you know, I, I have a great insurance policy. Like I talked to a family last week and he's like, the dad goes, uh, I'm only going to a facility that 100% is going to be paid by my insurance. (laughs) So I said, sir, did you go to the doctors anytime recently? And he goes, yes. I go, did you pay a copay? And he goes, yes. I go, it's kind of the same deal. So the insurance companies, by the way, they're the ones back in the day that designed this 30-day model, 28-day model. No documentation backs that up, by the way. Um, some people can get sober in AA meetings alone. Some people, and that was me,
0: by the way. Yeah, I tell people all the time, like, I never went to treatment. I went to AA meetings only, and I got sober from there. So I like to, too, also tell right. people you can get sober Correct. off of heavy drugs just by going to AA. And that's why there's no right way or wrong way to ever get sober.
1: But typically when we're talking about a young adult or an adolescent, totally, they, they need treatment. Right. But... Um, and traditionally, um, you know, the, the programs I've liked to work for is 90 days or longer, uh, you know, or no length of stay. For instance, I did 30 days at treatment left and I was like, I just quoted the whole movie 28 days with Sandra Bullock and I thought I was fixed. (laughs) And, um, what people don't realize is it's, you're, you're, you're being reprogrammed. So that doesn't happen in 30 days. Right. You know, my my old boss used to say to me, he's like, you can't learn a college course in 30 days. So when I went back to treatment, I actually my mother said, you know, or my counselor said, how long am I going to I said, how long am I going to be here? And he goes, how long's a piece of string?
0: (laughs) And I was pissed.
1: But for me, it took four months of residential and then I did long term aftercare. But going back to the cost, um, what I do, what I recommend is this is. It's like anything else. Unfortunately, there are some great resources out there. There's some really great resources where that you can use your insurance. But and then you know, obviously, if you have more money, there's even more. But what I I say is, you know, maybe start talking to people. Talk to your primary doctor. Um, If you have a therapist, ask for recommendations, and call the first place you get a referral for. Right and. Ask the admissions director after they run your insurance. If you're not feasibly able to do it, then um, ask them for recommendations like their top three within a price point that maybe works for you. Mm -hmm. But I will say this, and everyone I work with, I say, sit down as a family and figure out what you really have with finances and pretty much plan out the next year because that's what it's going to take. Not saying they have to be in residential treatment for a year, but Um, In my opinion, and most people who got sober at a young age, the common denominator with all of us with long-term sobriety is we did uh, a residential treatment for 30 to 90 days. And and then what we did is like an aftercare component, Mm -hmm. which is typically what we call extended care. Um, And that part is, or sober living, but structured sober living where, or transitional living where It's teaching you the life skills and practicing the day in and day out of being sober in a safe environment. And my motto is with this disease, slower is faster. You know, I learned that for also my old boss and very wise man. And, um, you know, it's just not a quick fix. And so when – so whatever finances you do have, just know – just whatever you do, don't dump it all into that first phase of treatment, okay. because in a lot of ways, You're that long the term, care. the aftercare piece is just as important, if, if not more important, to sometimes. prevent a relapse. Correct. Okay.
0: So while I have you here, one of the stories that's that's been breaking in the news lately and I do want to talk about it, is um, KTLA morning anchor Chris Burroughs. Just for full transparency, I uh, worked at KTLA, and I was a reporter and fill-in anchor there uh, back in 2008 uh, and 2009. Uh, Chris Burroughs came in 2011 to KTLA, but I still know so many of the people there, and it's just an absolute heartbreaking story about what happened to Chris. Um, Chris Burroughs was married, had a wife and a 9-year-old daughter, um, back in December of 2018, was found um, was found dead inside of a inside of a motel uh, in in Los Angeles, and, and the autopsy report just came out the other day, and um, said that he was having sex with another man, um, and that he was using crystal meth, and mm-hmm. that it went into great detail, which we don't need to go in here. But he had, was essentially inhaling uh, poppers, which is an inhalant like old video head cleaner, mm-hmm. um, and this has thrown a lot of people uh, because Chris Burroughs, if you any of the viewers loved him because he was fun, he was smiling, he was happy, mm-hmm. and he had this this magnetic personality about him that the viewers at home loved. Mm-hmm. They were absolutely stunned and shocked. The people in the newsroom stunned and shocked that he was clearly living a double life. Right. Um, he has a wife and a kid at home. But what I tried to tell people is that
1: well it's like people always say it's funny it's not
0: that uncommon. You know,
1: people like, in my family, it's funny when not funny, but when celebrities uh, overdose order or you find out that they are an addict, they go, They don't look like the type. And I'm like always. What's, what's the type? <laughs> um, you know, to me, you I don't know I, I didn't know this anchor. Mm-hmm. But when you describe him, I'm like, Yeah, that's an addict. Yeah. We're charming, we're smart. <laughs> We, I always say to my kids when they go to treatment, you are going to learn how to use your powers for good and not evil. I you love that. that. I love know? that because we are like in our sick disease, we are not good people. We but are. if we approach life the way we do about <laughs> copping drugs, like yeah. you can be like the master of the universe. And so we're also chameleons. So it's no shock to me to know how. He was so charismatic or so loved and so kind of pitched what you wanted to see of him. Right. But and obviously there
0: was a lot of pain. Yeah. Inside.
1: Right. I because. Mean, hiding is the hardest part. You know, hiding this secret of ours. You know, you don't want people to know. Um, and so that's that's the hardest part a lot of times is living that double life every day.
0: And I think that that's what's thrown me is because my, A, my connection to KTLA a, when I was at KTLA, I was at the very height of my addiction. And when I tell people, when I ended up in the ER twice that last week, right. um, I was, and I, and I read Chris's story, well, I was right. using crystal meth and I was having sex on crystal meth and I was at KTLA at the time right. and it wasn't until the last 60 days sober that I got sober while I was at KTLA, but I'm looking at those parallels and I was like, I was living a double life. My close friends didn't even know that I was going to the bathhouses at two o'clock in the morning and going to motels, seedy motels in Los Angeles as Chris was. Mm. And I remember the shame and the guilt that I felt just for living a double life. Like people knew that I was gay. So having gay sex would not be a shock, but I just remember how much shame and guilt I felt when I sobered up and I came down off those drugs and realized that I am, my friends don't even know the real me and I'm being a fraud and I'm being a fake. And I know the guilt that I had. And I think that that guilt sometimes when we don't express it or we don't feel like we're in a safe environment to to share our struggles with somebody, mm. it leads to something like this.
1: Right. No, I... You know, they talk about when you get sober, this rigorous honesty. Mm. And it's so... Hey, everybody. Um, no, it's so important, that piece of always being honest, because for years we are living such a lie. You know, I think it's also because... And that's why this these podcasts like that you're doing and and you know books and movies coming out are so important to take away that stigma you know it's yes. so people feel safer to talk about it Correct. you know i it's kind of like you know uh, talking to some families in the south or in areas of the country texas all over you know some people still whisper when they say their child's a homosexual you know because there's still parts of the country where people are like oh he's gay <laughs> and i'm like it's okay it's not the biggest problem here. Your son's an addict. But, you know, it's breaking that – it's breaking the silence and the stigma. Right. And, you know, people, you know, who do meth are, you know, they're not just gay men in bathhouses, you know. Yeah. I see, you know, CEOs of company just smoke up before a meeting. Yeah. You know, I, I used to work at facilities where we only worked with professionals in one track. So, yeah, your pilots, your surgeons – I heard some real fun stories <laughs> of people flying 747s and what they were on, but I'm just saying, like, we have to break. I think if more and more this is talked about, right. it, 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 the shame is going to get less and less. If we really, as a society, look at this as a chemical disease, and just it's not a, a moral issue. It's not, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but also good treatment is going to work with the individual on all that guilt and all that shame. Right. There's so much around that, you know, and, and reinventing yourself and wondering if you're going to be liked yeah. without it.
0: Yeah. It's just, you know, and in this situation it's, it is heartbreaking because y- you feel so much for the wife and the daughter that's now left behind. Correct. And, you know, I mean, and just go online. There's a lot of mean comments that are being made, and I just try to caution everybody that shows some compassion, that we, we don't know somebody's story, and we don't know that the pain that uh, – obviously Chris was in a lot of pain, um, and he was trying to cover up a lot of that pain. And
1: Yeah, don't be a cyber bully.
0: Nobody likes that. Don't be cyber bullies. Not cool. I will delete all your comments.
1: No, but it's also – here's the thing. When someone's addicted, they're sick, right? Mm-hmm. So if somebody was mentally ill or, again, had cancer – You wouldn't be mean. So why are you being judgmental and mean to someone who's – they're slowly dying a different way? Because what you don't understand as an addict and you understand and I understand is to this day I have a voice in my head that says, I don't want to feel this. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't mind going numb for a little bit. Whatever it will take to go numb. Um, And and that doesn't make me a bad person. Mm. You know? It's – I just – I'm I'm grateful I'm in recovery but and I have the tools now but um yeah there's no there's no need for people to be mean about
0: that. All right. Well, um thank you for joining us on episode 2. My dear friend, I love you very love you much. More. She is my she's my uh, my sober <clears throat> sister and she is like family to me and, um, I w- I, and I- she's one of the best so quickly because people are going to ask and I already have all of her information up on my website her direct number because I know a lot of the parents and people who are watching are probably like hey wait I want to talk to her more or I have a question about getting my son or my daughter or me into treatment Right? Um, what's the number they can call you at it's on my website as well
1: too um, I'm just going to give you my cell um, and if I can't answer your call I will text you but it is That's 561-506-0686. And again, I've been doing this for 12 years. So if not where I currently work, what I'm really good at is placing and knowing the right resources.
0: And it's important, and I'll add this before we wrap up. It is so important because not every treatment facility is an expert in the field that they may need. So not every place is the right fit for whatever drug or whatever addiction that you have.
1: And then also I was just going to say a big part of this is so many families are misplaced based on – you know, going with your gut, calling your insurance company, calling the first place you see on the on the internet. And I see a lot of families who've spent a ton of money at the wrong places. Yes. So really take the time to do your homework. I say to some parents, it's like looking for college, you know, unfortunately, but it is, yeah. you know, so. All right. Thanks y'all. We'll see you back here for episode three. Have a good one.